You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, well, we're continuing in the book of Acts this morning. We're in Acts chapter 20. Uh, so if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, you can make your way to page 929, uh, where you'll find today's text. There's a, uh, a lot in this chapter, and so I'm going to focus only on the second half uh, of Acts 20 this morning. I'm going to read that for us in a moment, uh, but let me first, because it is also equally important, let me just summarize uh, the first 16 verses of this chapter. Uh, after the riot in Ephesus, if you were with us last week in Acts 19, there was a riot about Artemis, you know, the goddess of the Ephesians. After that riot, Paul departs Ephesus, uh, and he continues on his third missionary journey. His entourage of traveling companions has now grown to at least nine. And the people that are listed at the beginning of Acts 20, uh, they are representatives from the various regions in which Paul has been planting churches. They're, they represent a really broad area uh, of churches. And they're now accompanying Paul ultimately to Jerusalem, where they're going to deliver a financial gift to the impoverished Christians who, who live there. So we get this incredible picture at the beginning of Acts 20 of how quickly the early church found unity in both identity and in mission. Uh, these Christians from all over the Mediterranean world, Gentile background Christians, are now giving financially to impoverished Jewish background Christians in Jerusalem, and they're helping Paul do that by taking the money uh, with him. As they travel along the way, uh, they stop in a city called Troas. And while they're there, this man, this young man named Eutychus, uh, dozes off during one of Paul's sermons, falls out a third-story window, and dies. Now, we've been talking about how some parts of Acts are descriptive and some parts of Acts are prescriptive. This is definitely prescriptive. In other words, if you fall asleep during a sermon, you will die. You will die. Just, it's in the Bible. I didn't write it. There it is. There it is. Okay, of course, that's not true. Uh, actually, actually, this becomes one more incredible display of the power that is at work in and through Paul, the power of Jesus. Uh, like the Old Testament prophets Elisha and Elijah, uh, like Jesus himself, like the apostle Peter, Paul gets to be part of bringing someone back to life. Uh, he, get, he gives us another foretaste, another glimpse of our own resurrection. And it brings incredible comfort, incredible encouragement to, to the church there. From there, the journey continues uh, Luke, the author of this whole book, the book of Acts, is now with Paul again. You hear a lot of the word we in those verses if you get a chance to read them. And Paul is resolved that he's going to make it to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. Uh, there are actually, we don't have time to get into them today, but there are a number of parallels between Paul's journey here to Jerusalem and how Jesus, in the last days of his earthly ministry, set his face like flint, the gospel writers tell us, toward Jerusalem. There was a, a Holy Spirit-led kind of drive to say, I, I know suffering and imprisonment awaits me there. I know hardship awaits me there, but I've got to get to Jerusalem, and I've got to get there soon. But first, Paul wants to see one more time the elders of Ephesus. Uh, and, and constrained by the schedule, constrained by the schedule trying to get there by Pentecost, he's afraid that if he actually stops in Ephesus, 
that he's going to end up spending way too much time there. He had been there, if you remember, three years. And so I kind of equate it like this, as, and mentioned this even just before this service started, um, why sometimes I can't go to coffee hour, like at 1025, because I'm afraid if I go there, I'll get into lots of conversations with you and I actually be late like I was today to pray with the musicians who are ready to come up and start the second service. Paul's afraid that if he actually stops in Ephesus, he's going to get hung up there for a long time and not actually make it to Jerusalem. And so with this entourage, he sails past Ephesus to another city called Miletus, which is another major harbor in the province of Asia. And from there, he asks the Ephesian elders to travel 30 or so miles to to join him. So that's where we pick things up in verse 17. Uh, And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in and among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Almighty God, our Father and our Shepherd, you have spoken to us through your Son. And so let us now hear your word. Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand, that we may not in these moments today or any day of our life refuse your calling or ignore your voice. Bring our every thought captive, even now, to obeying Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Amen.
Amen. So Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders is actually the only speech given in the book of Acts to Christians. It's the only speech given to Christians. All the other sermons, all the other speeches in this book are either evangelistic, they're either about sharing the good news of Jesus with people who don't know it, uh, or they are legal defenses. And in some cases, they're, they're both. But as Paul addresses the Ephesian elders here, we get a lot of insight into the biblical role, the biblical office of elder. So this morning, from these words in Acts 20, let's talk about three things. What elders are, what elders do, and why they do it. So what elders are, what elders do, and why they do it. So first, what elders are. And in short, elders are servant leaders in Jesus' church. More specifically, they are shepherds and overseers. Shepherds and overseers. So look back there at verse 28, where Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, the word there is shepherd, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, God's people are depicted as sheep. And that is not a positive comparison. It's not a positive comparison. Sheep are prone to wander off. Sheep go their own way. Sheep put themselves in danger time and time again. And so the image we have of ourselves when we look at this metaphor, this this picture in Scripture, is that we are not capable, competent, or autonomous people. We are people who desperately need to be led, who need a shepherd. And God himself is that shepherd. As the call to worship celebrated today, God is our shepherd and we are the flock, we are the sheep under his care. Or as Bob mentioned this morning, one of the most well-known psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God shepherding us is, is the only hope that you and I have to find rest and to find comfort and to find real safety. It's our only hope to experience goodness and mercy all the days of our life, as Psalm 23 says. Ultimately, it's our only hope to to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then when Jesus Christ came into the world, when he came in flesh, he referred to himself in John's gospel, among all these famous I am sayings. One of them, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He's the one who not only knows his sheep, knows the, the people who belong to him, but who willingly lays down his life for them. So we are sheep and God is the shepherd. But then as an extension of God's own shepherding, he appoints some to serve as what we might call under shepherds. And in the Old Testament, this would have been, these would have been the, the prophets and the priests and the kings. There were those who were called to lead the people of God in faithfulness. If you've been uh, reading through the Bible with us in a year, uh, we are rapidly approaching the end of the Old Testament. I think this week, actually, we will finally, you know, nine months into the year, almost 10 months into the year, we'll reach the end of the Old Testament. Uh, And if you've been following along with us, you'll see how many times in the Old Testament, even alone, these shepherds are commended when they lead well and cursed when they're unfaithful, and how the people of God just rise and fall depending on how they're being shepherded or not shepherded in any given moment. And so these shepherds, they, they answer to God. They have to give an account 
to God for what they're doing with that, that position, that place, that role of leadership that they have with God's people. In the New Testament then, uh, in the new covenant instituted by Jesus, elders of local churches, they become the under-shepherds of God's people. And as Paul puts it here in verse 28, they care for the flock. The church does not belong to elders at all. It's still God's church. And elders don't appoint themselves to that role. As Paul says here, the Holy Spirit made them this. The Holy Spirit led them and did work in their own heart and soul to guide them into that position. Elders then shepherd the people of God's church toward faithfulness and toward fruitfulness. So elders are shepherds. In addition, they are overseers. That's the other word that that Paul uses there in verse 28. Uh, And that word means guardian or superintendent. As they are caring for the people of God, uh, elders are also giving direction and giving guidance. So elders are servants. Uh, They don't do this for their own benefit. They do this for the benefit of those that they are caring for, but they are servant leaders. And though they ultimately, elders, all elders need accountability themselves, they actually ultimately don't answer to the church. They answer for the church. I'll say that again. They they don't answer to the church. They answer for the church. They answer to God for the way that they shepherd and care for and oversee his people. Now, the New Testament has a lot more to say about elders, which we won't cover today, uh, but would encourage you to read, as you have opportunity, two of Paul's pastoral letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, He goes into great detail about the qualification for elders. Uh, And only one or two, I guess, are really about their skill set, that elders must be able to teach, and that if they have a family, that elders need to care for and shepherd their own family well. All of the rest of the qualifications are about the character, the character of the person. The point being, as servant leaders, uh, elders set an example for the church to follow, for the sheep to follow. And I pray this is always true of my own life and the other elders of Liberty Church. You should be able to look at the life of an elder in Jesus' church and to perceive in that the aroma and the image of Jesus himself. You should be able to experience an extension of the very shepherding and the very overseeing of of Jesus, of God himself for you. And by God's grace, that's what the Ephesian elders have experienced in in Paul. And so Paul, as he's beginning this farewell address, he reminds them of his own example when he was doing this among them. Paul has been a picture to them, not just of what an elder is, but of what elders do. So second, let's talk about that. Not only what is what elders are, but what elders do. And in verses 18 through 21 here, uh, we get a rapid-fire list of some of the things that elders do. So, for one, elders live among. They live among. They, They don't live separate, unapproachable, private lives. They don't just spend time for the church, studying and praying, kind of in isolation. They they certainly do some of that, but they spend time with the church. They lead by being present and by being known among the people that they're called to lead. Elders serve with all humility, Paul says. That's his example. Uh, The leadership role that that they are given does not make them arrogant, does not give them a superiority complex over the people that that they lead. Elders cry with tears, Paul says, actually twice in this text. So elders don't just serve with their heads and with their hands. 
Elders serve with their, their hearts. They are emotionally invested in the labor of being an elder. They weep with people and they weep for people because they actually do love and care for people. Elders endure trials, Paul goes on to say. And Jesus calls all of his followers, all of his followers to come and die, to come and lose their life. But elders are those who say, okay, I'll go first. I'll go first. It's not, in other words, a cushy role. It's not a cushy role. It's, it's actually, in many ways, painting a bullseye on your chest for the attacks of Satan, the great enemy and adversary of our souls. Satan knows that if he can strike shepherds, that often the sheep will scatter. And so to be an elder is to sign up in some ways to put a bullseye in your chest for the attacks of Satan. It's also, think about how crazy this is. It's also when someone aspires to the role of an elder, they are asking, in essence, God to put their sanctification, their growth and transformation on hyperdrive. They're saying to God, I want to lead God's people. And God says, well, if you want to lead God's people, we need to bring some growth and maturity to your life so you have something to give the people you're leading. So here we go. Here we go. And often through trial, God will bring that growth and that maturity way faster than he might otherwise would have. And then finally, elders declare and teach boldly about Jesus. So Paul reminds them of his example. It was both in private, house to house, as well as in public. It was to Jews and to Gentiles. And he taught both repentance as well as faith in Jesus. In other words, elders teach all truth to all people in all places. So there's a lot here. There's a lot here. But Paul then actually spends the most time talking about two primary things elders do. Two primary things. As, as shepherds and overseers, elders feed the sheep and elders protect the sheep. It's kind of an obscure passage and one that's not widely known by, by many. But some of the bleakest words in the Old Testament come in the minor prophet book of Amos. And in Amos chapter 8, verses, eight uh, verses 11 through 12, God says via the prophet, Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now, spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, this is the worst kind of famine there is. Can you imagine wanting to hear what God would say, wanting to know the word of the Lord and not being able to find it anywhere? So elders are those who do everything in their power to make sure that no such famine happens on their watch. They feed the sheep. They, they are there to provide spiritual nourishment that we are so desperate and dependent upon. Now, what exactly is that food? What exactly is that nourishment that we all need? Well, in verse 20, Paul refers to it as the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. In other words, the entirety of God's redemptive plan. All of God's design and direction for life as it unfolds, as it has been revealed to us in Scripture. So elders cannot take a personal agenda, read that into Scripture, pick and choose passages that seem to support whatever they already wanted to say, and then teach that and try to feed people with that. It's taking even the, the difficult parts of the Word of God, and there are difficult parts of the Word of God, parts that offend our sensibilities. And it's taking all of that 
in order to help people understand what faithfulness to God actually looks like in any age, in in every age. Elders are not at liberty to substitute their own kind of food for the pure food of God's word. They're not free to avoid parts of it that, that might be hard to stomach. You know, I don't know how you guys, you know, go to a buffet line and kind of pick and choose what you want to put on your plate. If there's like liver and onions there and you're like, pass, I don't want that. Well, elders can't approach the word of God that way. They can't go, pass, that one, not touching that. Nor uh, can they add things to God's word, even if it seems like the stuff they're adding is going to be nourishing, even if it seems like it's going to be helpful. They can't, my wife's a registered dietitian. Some of her friends in college who were studying with her did crazy things like add black beans to brownies to try to make them healthier. Don't do that, please. Please, don't do that. Or like, you know, maybe as a parent, you might add like zucchini to baked items to try to like sneak it in for your kids. That's okay, no judgment if you do that. I will judge you if you put black beans in brownies, but not the, not the other stuff. But we can't do the spiritual equivalent of that either. We can't, if we think, well, we're gonna sneak this in there It's not in the Bible itself. It's not actually been revealed by the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to put it in there anyway because I think it's going to help people. We're not free to do that either. Elders teach and proclaim God's word. They teach only what the Holy Spirit has revealed through the prophets and the apostles, and they trust that those words, these words of Scripture, by both exposing our sin and by encouraging us in the kindness and redemption of God, that they will be what truly feeds the flock. Now, I hope there are are many of you in this room that that aspire to lead in various capacities in the church. I hope there are some men in the room this morning that aspire to be elders someday, maybe even at this church. But since most of you in the room this morning are not currently elders, here's a question for you this morning. Do you hunger for this food? Do you hunger for this food? Do you really desire to know the whole counsel of God? And when, when we gather, if this is your church home here, when we gather, do you come longing to hear what God will speak? Do you come rejoicing that that you don't at this moment live in a spiritual famine where God's word can't be found? Elders are here to labor so that that spiritual famine, the absence of God's word never comes. So your role is to come hungry, to come hungry, wanting to know what God will speak. In addition to feeding then, elders protect. They protect sheep. And Paul here anticipates the day when false teachers or fierce wolves, as he calls them, will arise in the church. Uh, Some, even from among the elders, from among their own ranks, and will draw people away from Jesus. Now, this might have been a prophetic statement from Paul. We're not exactly sure. Whether it was prophetic or not, it is what happened. So from his letters to Timothy about 10 years later, we know that within a decade, some of the Ephesian elders became false teachers and did draw people away. And it's kind of crazy to think some of them might actually have been sitting there with Paul here in Acts 20 before that happened. So just to extend the imagery that's there for us in Scripture, there are sheep, there are shepherds, there are also wolves, false teachers. And some wolves are obvious. Sometimes it's really clear that that person is trying to draw people away from Jesus. Others are far more subtle. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. They actually look and smell a little bit like a sheep, at least for some some time. It is not always immediately obvious who is drawing people away from Christ. 
And a famous British pastor and author named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once said, actually the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. The one who does not emphasize the right things because there are actually multiple ways you can draw people away from Jesus. You can draw people away from Jesus into a more religious kind of rebellion where you add things to the word of God. You can draw people away from Christ that way. Or you can draw people away from Christ in more overt rejection and rebellion against him. Beyond that, there's no guarantee that someone who is a faithful shepherd for some period of time doesn't reveal himself to be a wolf later on, doesn't become a wolf later on. That even in, our, in the broader circles in which we run as a church, that's happened even in our broader circles, and, and I'm sure it will again. So as one of these elders charged to protect God's people from wolves, I treasure your prayers. I treasure your prayers. This sermon this morning might sound really self-serving, and at least this part of it is. At least this part of it is. If you don't already, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for Steve and for Bob and for Mike and for Andrew? This, there's an immense weight to this responsibility. See, as a, as a shepherd, as an overseer, if I call wolf, when actually that person is just a really immature sheep and just needs to be gently and patiently guided along into truth, and I call wolf on that person, I wound and damage in horrible ways someone that has been bought by Jesus, someone that belongs to him. God forbid. God forbid. If on the other hand, if on the other hand, there actually is a wolf in sheep's clothing and I don't call wolf, now I wound and damage the entire flock. I let, I let a wolf run among you. And so as Paul says here in verse 31, you have to be constantly alert, constantly vigilant, scanning the flock night and day to see if a a disguised wolf is lurking. So pray for myself and the elders here that God would keep us alert, that God would keep us vigilant. Pray that he would grant the discernment of the Holy Spirit to differentiate between a sheep who needs to be tended to and a wolf who needs to be shot. So that's what elders are. That's a little bit of what elders do. Third and finally, let's consider why they do it. Why they do it. Why do elders shepherd and oversee? Why do they feed and protect the people of God? Well, first, let's make sure we see a few reasons that it's not. That it's not. Uh, It's not for money. It's not for money. Paul reminds the Ephesians, I didn't do this for financial gain. Uh, Paul actually, from, in most of the places that he traveled and ministered, he actually held a different job. He, he made tents and other leather goods so that he would not be accused of doing this for financial gain. Now, he later goes on to write that, that ministers of the gospel are worthy of being paid for their work, but it is never about the money. It's never about the money. Whatever financial compensation there is or isn't, serving as an elder is always more about what you are trying to give to other people than what you are receiving. And that's why Paul says right after he's talking about, in in the context of talking about elders, you know, the words of Jesus that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So it's not for money, nor is it for recognition or esteem. Not that those things don't have appeal to them. They certainly do. But actually, this is why in some ways, I'm grateful for the, the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. Right now, at least where I sit, in my opinion, 
uh, appreciation and respect for leadership in any realm, any realm of life, not just the church, feels like it's at an all-time low. And that's especially true anywhere that authority is an aspect of that leadership, you know, as it is in the church. Now, to be sure, pastors and elders have brought some of that upon ourselves. And as I'm sure you can attest, tragically, maddeningly, there are way too many cases where elders have abused the position they've been given, the authority that they have. They have wounded people. They have been heavy-handed with people and hurt people made in the image of God and people who belong to Jesus. I just want to say to you this morning, if, if that's you, if you have that experience in your life, if you have been wounded by the abuse of authority from someone in the church, an elder, a deacon, a something, a pastor in the church, I'm sorry, truly. And what I hope you hear me say today is that what you experienced is a horrible perversion of something that God designed and something that God intends for good. For good. I, I recognize that if you've been on the receiving end of something like that, then you are probably going to struggle with this for a long time, if not the rest of your life. You're going to wrestle with, like, can I actually trust flawed human beings who are called to be leaders and have some authority in their leadership? You're going to struggle with that. But I hope you see that it is a perversion of what God has designed and not, not the reality of what he's put forward. But for that reason, for other reasons, in this moment, the norm is suspicion and cynicism about church leadership. And that, you know, speaking from personal experience, that makes it hard to lead sometimes, but it does positively expose and weed out impure motives a lot faster. So if recognition and esteem is what you're really after, then in this moment, you'll get more of that by bashing church leadership on a podcast than you will by actually being a church leader. There's an easier path to recognition and esteem right now, and it's that, not actually serving in the church. One more thing that it's, that's not the reason. Uh, elders don't shepherd and oversee because sheep are easy. And that's, I guess, kind of a backhanded insult to all of you this morning. Um, but hear me out. Hear me out. Sheep go astray. Sheep bite. Sheep need constant tending. And yet, and yet, they are Jesus' sheep. And that is why elders do this. Because we are not talking friends, about a civic association or a social club. We are talking about the church of God. And each and every sheep, each man and woman and child is precious in God's sight. So precious that each sheep has been obtained, Paul says, by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has substituted himself in their place. He has taken their sin upon himself in order to reconcile them with God the Father. Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews puts it, is the great shepherd of the sheep. And Jesus shed his blood. He laid down his own life to bring people, you, into his fold. He is, as the words of encouragement celebrated this morning, as the Apostle Peter writes it, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And every single elder in Jesus' church is first and foremost a sheep. One who has gone astray. One who bites one who needs constant tending, one who is likewise utterly dependent upon the blood of Jesus to enter into the family of God, the flock of God. Elder or not, we as Christians are meant to be captivated by the sacrifice of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We're meant to be so awed by the sacrifice he would make, though he had that role in our lives, that we never get over this. 
We never get over it. And then some of us, through the powerful and mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, we find deep within our souls an aspiration that we have to, we have to give our lives to this in another way. We have to use our lives for the sake of other sheep, for the sake of Jesus' church. Some things are more important than life itself. Not many. Not many, but some. And shepherding God's people is one of them. That's why Paul can say in verse 24 that he does not account his life of any value as long as he can finish the course, as long as he can do the work that God has called him to do. In other words, the gospel and God's people are more precious to him than his own life. We we so often think of Paul as, you know, the the writer, uh, the traveling missionary. We think of Paul as the the doctrine guy. You know, he wrote a lot about the person and work of Jesus. He wrote a lot about the church. He is all of those things. We forget Paul as a pastor. We forget Paul shepherds people, real people. And one of the most powerful glimpses of that comes right here at the end of Acts 20. The weeping and the embracing on the beach that day, it displays the deep love and the deep affection that these saints had for one another. And as Paul will go on to write in 1 Thessalonians, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but what? But our very selves because you had become very dear to us. Now, like in many other churches, at Liberty Church, when an elder is ordained, he takes a series of vows. And when you actually step back and think about some of what those vows are, it's kind of crazy. It's audacious. One in particular says, you know, for, for me, I as an elder will feed and protect the flock. I will shepherd and oversee, quote, Whatever persecution or opposition may arise to me on that account. Whatever persecution or opposition may arise to me on that account. So let me, as we close, take this out of first century Ephesus and bring it into 21st century central Pennsylvania. This, friends, this is the worth God imparts to you. Right where you sit this morning, you are worth dying for. You are worth dying for. And Jesus Christ came into the world and for you he died. The elders of this church are a physically present, tangible expression of that love. And by the grace of God, as we, sh- as we seek to feed and protect, we are here to embody the reality that you are precious enough to die for. That it is worth, that it is worth more than my life if you will find yours in him. That, after all, is the way that I have been loved by Jesus and the way that Mike and Steve and Bob and Andrew have been loved by Jesus. And so if our shepherding, if our overseeing can give you even a tiny experience of Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that is worth everything we have. That is why we do this. That's why we do this. Now, who is sufficient for these things? Not me. Not me. But like Paul does for these Ephesian elders that day. There have been other trustworthy, reliable men who have faithfully gone before, and they have laid their hands on me, they have laid their hands on the other elders of this church, and they have commended us to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build us up and give us the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Who is sufficient for these things? Not me. 
but Jesus is. And as Jesus is my shepherd, just as I pray, he is yours. Jesus has become my sufficiency in the pursuit of shepherding you. So church, in the very existence of the role of elder and in the men who serve as elders here, may you see Jesus. May you see how precious you are. May you see how loved you are. Jesus has bought you with his blood and as the shepherd and overseer of your souls, he has called some to be shepherds for his church. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, you are the shepherd. We are the flock under your care. And this morning, we bless you for the work of Jesus, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Uh, that our lives were counted precious to you. More precious even than, than the life of Jesus, that he offered up his own life as our shepherd to bring us in, to obtain us into this fold. So as we get ready to come now to this table, as we see the unbelievable cost, Jesus, of your body offered up, your blood poured out, would you remind us of the gift it is to be shepherded? by you first and foremost, but as you have raised up and called men to serve as elders of this local church and other local churches, may we see again the gift this morning of being shepherded by you. Grant us eyes to see that this morning. Grant us eyes to see Jesus this morning as we come to his table. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.